Here we are again with uh, the Christian response to liquid modernity. <clears throat> I'm Paul Fortunato, and let me start by talking about a question that occurs in the news about the Bladensburg Cross case in Maryland, where they had set up a Latin cross commemorating the deaths of soldiers <clears throat> who died in World War I, American soldiers, in a public space in Maryland. And there is a group uh, of, of humanists who were protesting this public uh, defense of, of Christianity in an American public space. And the Supreme Court decided to allow it, and that it was not a good idea to start taking down all these religious symbols, which have been around for decades. But that does leave open the question, what about today? Is today in the United States, is it permissible or would it make sense even to make a cross commemorating the deaths of people and put that in a public space? And I would answer that it's not. Things have changed. We are a different society than we were in the past. I'm glad they left that, that Bladensburg cross. Um, but, you know, in the early 1900s, T.S. <clears throat> Eliot wrote about the ideas of, of different civilizations and the fact that in order to get a civilization going, whether it was ancient Jewish civilization or Roman civilization or um, Islamic civilization or Chinese civilization, you needed a religion to drive that civilization. And Eliot asks the question, what about today? What about Britain? What about the United States? What about any country in Europe who are no longer unified by a religion? We're multicultural states multicultural societies, fundamentally? And I think it's a very good question, but the answer, the answer is we're doing it. We, we've done it and it's good. It's not, there are some losses. We're no longer, uh, you know, clearly, uh, we, we have much more debate about things like abortion and marriage, but that's good, I think. Um, and so as I'm dealing with this Christian response to liquid modernity, that's a, an aspect of modernity, which is, which is positive in my, in my view, but we just need to deal with it. So let me go ahead and start. Um, and here, I wanna talk about the ancient past. You know, Eliot was talking about these ancient cultures. So how did we get from the ancient past to the, to the present? And, let me talk about ancient times, the axial age, and then modern times or the enlightenment. In ancient times, uh, the concept of virtue was focused on strength, on loyalty to the tribe, the hero who defeats the enemy, Achilles, um, Hector. Fulfillment is in honor, gaining honor and glory, often in battle. And that was the common idea for most of these ancient cultures. I'm, I'm talking in really, really broad brushstrokes here. 
but it is applicable. And things changed in the axial age, which called the axial age. And then there were new virtues, humility, meekness. Heroes suffered defeat. Um, abstract philosophical uh, views were developed in a new and, and deepening way. Heroes do continue to slay the dragon of chaos, but heroes sometimes die. Heroes oftentimes sacrifice themselves. And, and there are all kinds of losses, but losses that aren't definitive. But deepening, suffering is seen as a deepening and potentially positive growth uh, driver. So that's the axial age. And that period covers roughly 800 to 200 before Christ, BCE, before the Common Era. 800 to 200. And the amazing thing there is that this happened all over the world, in China, with Confucius, in India, in um, the Middle East, with Isaiah and Deutero-Isaiah, and eventually Jesus, in, <clears throat> in Greece, and so forth. So we're going to go over that. And then when we move to the Enlightenment or modern times, they continued some of these axial virtues, but they tended to not emphasize humility as much. And they tended to focus on gaining power and control, control over nature, control by technology. And that's very much the world we're living in today. We're a modern world, still a liquid modern world, but we tend to find fullness by technology and controlling nature. So, and there's positives and there's negatives to that. Um, you know, in Greece, you have Plato and Aristotle, these wonderful philosophers. And, you know, um, for those of you who can see the image, I've got the, the famous image of Aristotle and Plato in, in Raphael's painting, Aristotle pointing down because he's focusing on working from material realities up and Plato pointing up because he's focusing on the world of ideas and working down. But they both work together. I mean, Plato was actually Aristotle's teacher. Socrates was Plato's teacher. So these men, these Greek philosophers in the 400s and 300s BCE were developing these axial age ideas about virtue, about what is justice, what is truth, what is beauty, what is piety. And so um, let me talk about the axial age in these ancient cultures in Israel, um, in Greece, India, China, and Iran. In Israel, ancient Israel, the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Abraham, Moses, these classic stories, which I believe are true, are also mythic in the sense of they are iconic and, and, and give birth to a whole slew of ideas and cultures and, and, and the culture of, of Ju Judaism and Christianity and ultimately Islam later on. But um, those are rich, power-packed stories. Like the Cain and Abel story, it's so short, but it, it gets into the reality of evil so quickly and so clearly. Um, but in the Axial Age, some of the uh, prophets, and then later on Jesus, are going to philosophize about these stories and get abstract and think about what is 
justice? What is piety? What does it mean to be holy? Isaiah in exile and, and facing the suffering of exile. Job, um, the story which, again, is mythic. It's not clearly a, a, a literal story, but that talks about what about meaningless suffering or suffering that, that's not for any reason. You're just suffering just because you're suffering. How do I find meaning in that? This is a new type of, of writing that's coming up in the Jewish and Christian tradition. That's the Axial Age. In Greece, the earlier time period, you had the Iliad, the Odyssey, these mythic stories, gods and goddesses, Achilles, superheroes. But then Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, a generation later, or more than a generation later, in, in the 400s and 300s BCE, get abstract and philosophize about what is justice? What is, how do I live loyalty? I'm, I'm Antigone, I'm loyal both to my family, my brother, and to my state. How do I you know, do that? Um, this is philosophizing. In India, in ancient times, you had the Vedas, the stories. By the time you get into the Axial Age, you have the Upanishads, and then you have Buddha, Buddha who basically founds the new, the new religion of, of Buddhism, and he sees human suffering, and he sees human limitation, and he has to kind of really dig deep and philosophize about that and creates a whole new religion. In China, the ancient rites and myths and stories about sage kings, those were the earlier ancient period. But in the Axial Age, you have Confucius, who's philosophizing. He's kind of very parallel to Socrates and Plato. You have Lao Tzu, the, the founder of Taoism, or the guy who develops Taoism, um, where you have the yin and the yang, and you have this balance between opposites in society, very much uh, anticipating what like Hegel would develop in, in, in the 19th, is that the 19th century? Yeah, in, 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 uh, in Germany. And then in Iran, you had ancient myths, but Zarathustra comes in and he's, he's philosophizing very much like Confucius or Socrates um, and founding this new religion. And then of course, Jesus, I'm, I'm lopping him in with the Israel tradition. Um, and he comes a little bit later because he comes obviously around the year zero. Um, I'm calling the, the axial age proper 800 to 200 BCE. But Jesus is very much fulfilling um, this axial approach, um, developing it and, and with the virtues of humility, the, the Beatitudes, thinking about mercy, uh, something that uh, someone like Achilles would not, would not embrace, for example, the, or the ancient hero. So in these ancient stories, um, the Genesis stories, I'm calling them mythic, mythic in quotations, not because they're not true, but that they're iconic, that they're, they're these life-generating stories. Um, the later philosophers and writers were developing those things. Same thing with Homer's Iliad. Later on, you have Heraclitus, Plato, Socrates um, doing the Axial Age version of them. Okay, let's jump to the modern age. 1500s, Sir Francis Bacon, England, scientific revolution, Protestant reformation, huge changes. This is basically creating the modern world that we have today. And he writes a lot of great science. He's developing the scientific uh, procedure, which is really just creating tons of new data and knowledge. And, and so he gets heady, he gets all kind of 
caught up in himself and he's like, hey, we can, we can actually perfect the world. We can create a utopia. And, you know, um, St. Uh, Thomas More, uh, also in England, wrote the book Utopia, partly to critique the type of people like Francis Bacon. Um, he's showing that the utopia can, is fraught with all kinds of potential destructiveness. Whereas Bacon saw it as nothing but positive. And he was saying things like, um, we need to just, you know, use technology, perfect society, perfect everything, just use math and science. We've got the mathematics of human, human life and we can just perfect humanity. But we need scientists to be in charge. He puts himself in charge, not unsurprisingly very human thing to do. But his argument is that the scientists, the experts are the people who know the most. We need to put them in charge. Don't, don't educate the people too much. We need the scientists who know the most. They're the ones who are going to perfect society. Um, so that's what I'm going to call the modern age, the after virtue age. Um, so let me talk about the transition from axial to, to the modern age, so the after virtue age. In the axial age, I would say, and, and you know, let me say this, the axial age really, so it flourishes 800 to 200 BCE. But that culture pretty much uh, was the main culture throughout the world, through most of the world, up until the modern age. And it reaches its high point in the West. And I'm sorry to be kind of pro-Western here, but I, I just can't ignore that. And plus, I'm a Christian, and I, can, I, I argue that Christianity has, has so much to offer here. But because the Christian West, the largely Christian West, had the resources of the Jewish tradition and the Judeo-Christian tradition, plus the Greek tradition, plus the Roman tradition of law and practicality, it, it gave rise to the wonders of the West. I mean, that's where Francis Bacon comes from. The scientific revolution comes in the West because of this, partly. The democratic revolution comes from the West because of, you know, part of this tradition. So in that Axiolay's virtue ethics tradition, we have the use of reason with faith, with belief, with story. So it's not just reason as a sort of abstract mathematical logic, but it's story-infused reason. It's religiously-infused reason. So that's the Christian tradition that I'm talking about. And, and you have different versions of this um, in China, in the Middle East, in the Americas. But I'm going to argue that it has a special high point in 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 the in the Christian West. Uh, it's not that, and, and it's not that there's a universal truth. There's a universal truth, I would argue, in Christ. That's a religious truth. But we don't have a universal truth in terms of science. Science is always science and philosophy are always an argument, an ongoing dialogue. You know, Plato wrote dialogues. He didn't write here's the definition of truth, here's the definition of beauty. He wrote like arguments, like here's different views, the symposium, what's love? You have different views of love. And obviously yeah, he tends to like bias himself in favor of Socrates, his main character in his dialogues. But even there, Socrates isn't always right. And you have to kind of do the philosophizing yourself. He's not teaching you 
by saying like, here, memorize this, this is the truth. He's saying, enter into this discussion, enter into this dialogue, enter into this tradition. That's the beauty of Western Christian intellectual thought. It's dialectical reason. It's a tradition that's building on itself and critiquing itself constantly. In the Middle Ages, you had Aquinas building on Muslim philosophers and Jewish philosophers and Augustine and the Christian patristic fathers. And then you had Dun Scotus in the, in the Franciscan tradition, you know, arguing against Aquinas and Aquinas, you know, so you have these different schools of thought, the Dominicans and the Franciscans in the Middle Ages. Um, and so this is the beauty of, of Christian intellectual thought, <clears throat> dialectical reason, dialogic reason. Transition to the modern age, the after virtue age, and you have a kind of fracturing of culture and even a fracturing of reason. Because I'm going to argue that you have both hyper-rationality and anti-rationality working in unison in modern culture. How does that work? It's hyper-rational because we critique all story. We critique all value. The only truths that we can know are empirical, scientifically provable truths. Everything else is just opinion and is just emotional falsehood, according to this mode of speaking. That's very much the Francis Bacon approach. He just wants to base everything purely on pure reason. Same thing that Descartes does, same thing that Kant does. He wants pure reason. Let's take all this other stuff. It's, it's pretty much falsehood. We can't base our lives on these things. They critique even story, the stories that inspire us and shape us. That's the hyper-rational. Then you have the anti-rational because how do you do moral morality? How do you do moral philosophy? Emotivism. This is what Alistair McIntyre is so brilliant at critiquing in his book After Virtue is the emotivist approach to morality where how do I decide what is good and what is evil? Well, what do I feel? on my emotions. And there's a certain truth in that because obviously our emotions are part of how we desire the good, want the good, know the good. But if our lives are a set of disorganized emotions and distractions like happens in modern culture, especially liquid modern culture like we have today, but even in that earlier modernity, it's going to lead to all kinds of contradictions. And that gives us like all kinds of the, the, the ongoing debate about what do we do about abortion? What do we do about marriage? There's just going to be continual uh, debate and, and, and no ability to come to, to conclusions on these things. So um, let me get to a quote from McIntyre in his book, After Virtue. And it says this, modern moral utterance and practice can only be understood as a series of fragmented survivals of an older past. Okay, so let me pause there. So he's saying, we're making these moral utterances, these moral claims, this is good, this is evil. But what we're doing today in the modern world is we've got fragmented survivals of an older past. We're using the same words, justice, goodness, but those words have been broken and fragmented and they don't work completely. It's like riding a tractor that is partly broken. It kind of moves, but it can't move correctly. 
you know, McIntyre uses the, the uh, um, metaphor of, uh, and I'll do this briefly because it's a long metaphor. It's the metaphor of how uh, in, in a putative sci-fi um, sci future, if there were a, a series of, of um, ecological disasters, let's say the masses rose up against the scientists, killed them, destroyed all the scientific machinery, destroyed all the scientific books and so forth. And then eventually, after let's say a few decades, people wised up and realized, no, that was a mistake. We should not have destroyed those scientific machines and books and databases. We go back to them and we would still, we would have them, but they would be kind of broken. We would have the microscope, but it wouldn't function totally correctly. We wouldn't know how to use it. And we would be using it wrongly. So this is the idea that McIntyre has. We still have them, but they're kind of broken. Then he says, quote, such that the deontological character of moral judgments is a ghost conception of divine law. And the teleological character is similarly the ghost of conceptions of human nature and activity. So he's saying, We've got these ghost conceptions of divine law. So in the past, we would have had a clear conception of divine law and that human laws are based on these eternal truths. Um, but so when we talk about justice today, we have like these ghost conceptions or Zygmunt Bauman calls them zombie ideas. They're like half dead and half alive or they're both dead and alive. So they, they kind of walk, but they like stumble along. So <laughs> That's what our moral language is like. That's what our culture is like. It's like a zombie culture. Same thing in the uh, conceptions of human nature and activity, says McIntyre, the teleological character. So like the fact that we're ended, we are oriented towards an end, towards a telos, a purpose, a mission, it's still there, but we've got this ghost conception, this zombie conception. It's not clear. It's kind of stumbling along very imperfectly. And so, I actually um, got some questions from some, some students. One of the questions was, uh, why did the axial age happen at that time? And um, let me answer that. It, we're not totally sure, but between 800 and 200 BCE, in many of these places, you had an empire that fragmented into a lot of little states that were warring with each other. In China, it's called the Warring States period, even. And because of that, there were a lot of political advisors advising kings and princes and giving them advice and philosophy and so forth. And so that's how Confucius arises. In Greece, uh, you had all these small city-states, Athens warring with Sparta, and so forth, and, and a lot of these guys were, were in Athens, and, and they had just lost a huge battle, so they start philosophizing, like what happened? Why did this happen? So that's one reason. The other reason that I've heard is that money was developing, and this was kind of the first globalization period, such that there was much, at the beginning of much more trade along the Silk Route between the East, the Far East China, the Middle East, and Europe, and, and Africa. So the exchange of ideas takes place on a, on a much bigger scale, or just the beginnings of a bigger scale at this time. Second question, 
uh, people will object that modern people are pro-reason. You know, utilitarians, they're just using reason to try and figure out how to do morals. Okay, utilitarians, I, I think utilitarianism doesn't make sense. So let me just bracket that for a second because um, it, it claims to be using reason, but anyway, it doesn't really work and it hasn't worked anywhere. But I would say this, that um, in the modern university, I'm, I'm in, a, in a modern university, I love it, I love my, my colleagues, but I think a lot of them have a mistaken notion of reason, which is limited to empirical reality. What I can experiment on, that's what's true. Everything else is kind of emotional mushiness. And so um, philosophers and scientists and English professors like myself will tend to see that's what's true, only what my, I can empirically prove. Well, what, do you, what about the meaning of my life? How do I empirically prove that? What about goodness? What about beauty? I mean, you, you can do a kind of empirical survey, but that doesn't get to the root of beauty. These are things which we have to philosophize about. And so um, Nietzsche, who was kind of the, the kind of extreme version of mod modern, modernism and modernity, characteristically attacked who? He attacked the Christians and Socrates. Why? Because Socrates was developing rationality and using reason and Christians were also as well. And they were pursuing things like what is true and what is good. And, and asking those questions, like, how do I live a truly good life? Nietzsche says, look, good and evil, those are just words. What you're really after is power, the will to power. And that, most people don't, don't think that literally, but that's kind of the way we sort of see things. Like, if it's not empirically proven, it's just emotional mush, which is you trying to gain power. And so we don't, it also leads to a lot of distrust in, in public institutions, which is a problem. Um, we don't, we don't want to, we do want to have some skepticism of our public institutions, but we need some trust in them. We need, there are good people out there. There are good statesmen and stateswomen and philosophers and teachers and so forth. Okay. Um, another question. What did, oh, let me finish that question. So, so think about who defends the use of reason today. It's largely, or at least some of the major ones, are Christian intellectuals, including uh, some popes like Pope St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict and Pope Francis. Um, and I'm Catholic, so I'm biased. But anyway, I, I do think these popes have, have helped us hugely. Pope John Paul II wrote this wonderful book, Faith and Reason. And he's the one defending the use of reason. And he's the one and, and, and people in that tradition, in, in the Christian intellectual tradition, they have an account for wh why reason works so much, why the science works so much. Um, and, and Pope Benedict as well, great intellectuals of, of our modern age. Um, and then of course I would point to um, Alistair McIntyre, Jamie Smith, uh, Charles Taylor, some of the great philosophers of our age are Christians. Uh, both Catholics and Protestants. Then why, or what did modern philosophers get right? Okay, so I'm sort of saying all these modern philosophers messed everything up. No, that's not what I'm saying. There are wonderful, huge benefits 
two modern philosophers. And I just uh, poo-pooed Descartes and Kant, but I love Descartes and Kant. I mean, they did wonderful work in areas that previous philosophers had not done. So I'm not saying that, you know, human thought reached the high points with Aquinas in 1275 and everything goes downhill from there. That's not what I'm saying. I think there was a high point with Aquinas and I, I think he did a wonderful synthesis of, of all the, the modes of thought, Greek, Christian, Muslim, and so forth of his time. But we needed to go beyond that. I mean, he didn't get into things like psychology or um, a lot of the human experience things that phenomenologists have developed, like like um, Edmund Husserl and Heidegger, and then even John Paul II himself is in that is in, is in that tradition of phenomenological thought, um, and then Charles Taylor and all these other guys. Yeah, so there are huge elements of progress. Uh, we are multicultural. That's progress. We have an openness in society that you didn't have in previous societies. In previous societies, in ancient societies, everyone had to be of the same religion. And that worked at that time, but that doesn't work anymore. It would be horrible if that if you tried to do that now. You, I mean, you sort of had that, you have that with like totalitarian states like the Soviet Union. They said like, everyone's gotta have the same belief system, otherwise we throw you in prison. And sadly, in some Muslim countries, it's, it's, it's the same. Um, not most Muslim countries, but some of them. And so we don't want that anymore. We want multiculturalism. And so I had started with that example of the Bladensburg Cross in Maryland. We're a modern multicultural society in the United States. It was, it's improper for us to kind of presume a Christian culture, but we want to use Christian culture to, to enrich the society, to enrich the public dialogue. That's how Christians can, we, we are uniquely positioned to, to, to present this huge benefit to modern culture. Um, and so, and we're doing it. So um, we have had progress. Um, democracy is progress. Multiculturalism is progress. Um, so that answers that question. So I'm coming to the end of my time. So let me pause there, but thank you for listening and, and we'll, we'll see you back next time.